Well, good morning. It is wonderful to see you. Uh, my name is Aubrey. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, hey, Brian's. I um, I am so happy to be back and to get to worship our great and kind and merciful King together with you. As many of you know, my mother died from the coronavirus in April. And at her funeral, which was in June, my wife and I contracted the virus um, from our best friends and passed it on to three of our five children. And my brother and his family also got it, and my sister and her family got it, and I ended up in the hospital for 15 or 16 days, and half of that time in ICU. And for a number of days, I was in the valley of the shadow of death. And so many of you prayed for me and for my family. And through your prayers and the work of the Spirit, God delivered me from death. And thank you. Thank you so much. I love you. I owe you my life, and I love you for that, and my family's been held by you, and we're so grateful for this church. This has been a very hard year for my family, and my sickness um, was just the public part of that. A few of you know that there was many heart-wrenching things happening to my family this year. And, and not just my family. I know that many of you, this is a hard year. We're in the middle of a bewildering season. And so many challenges keep happening and piling up on us. To begin with, we have this deadly coronavirus that you can get from a friend who isn't even manifesting any symptoms of sickness. And then there's the political chaos that dominates our newsfeed. It seems like half the people I talk to, all they can do is talk about the politics and what's going on. And the other half, all they can do is try to tell me not to talk about it. Um, all of this fear and hate that divides the right from the left. And on top of that, we have the rapid education that many of us are going through with regard to the burden of the African-American community that they're facing every day. And, and, and the education that some of us are going through on this has a, a serious emotional and intellectual toll in its own right. And then you've got the religious zeal of the social justice warriors and their violence in the cancel culture. And finally, we have this economic reality that, that we're going through that's impacting households and cities. Do you know that our city lost something like $6 million in tax revenue when JMU shut down in the spring? That's a very serious thing that's about to be compounded and it's going to make life difficult. 
here in Harrisonburg in ways that it hasn't been yet. And then our states, what they're going through in our nation. And as the days and weeks and months have gone by, I, like many of you, have gone through a whole range of emotions. But we're Christians. And I know that not everyone who attends our church is a Christian. And for those who are not Christians, I'm so glad that you come to our church. And I hope that you continue to come to our church. But as a Christian church, one of the most important things we need to do is we need to react to the stress and the confusion and the changes that our, our nation and world is going through. We need to react in ways that are shaped by the Bible. And we need to evaluate our reactions according to the ways the Bible instructs us to react in these kind of moments. So if you've committed your life to Jesus, then he's given you a mission. And that mission he told us very clearly in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, is to let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. That's what we've got to be asking right now. What, what is it that I can do practically to let my light shine? As a church, we've got to say not just how do we protect ourselves and how do we survive. We've also got to stop and think, okay, we're supposed to be a shining city on a hill. How do we do that in this kind of season, in this kind of moment? So starting today, and then for the next several weeks, I'm going to preach a series of sermons on what, what does the Bible show us about what we need to be doing and how we need to be re reacting so that we are a shining city on a hill with gates wide open, pledging our allegiance to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and inviting others to come in and find in Jesus Christ all of the healing and all of the joy and all of the deliverance that they need. This morning, I'm going to start the series by sharing with you some of my own experience with God during the brutal suffering and heartbreak that my family has gone through over the past nine months. So I'm going to start the series in a really personal way. I'm going to talk about 10 things or 10 ways that God is leading me to react to the pain and the suffering and the confusion. Number one, God is reminding me that spiritual warfare is real. That there is more to life than what our doctors and scientists can see in a microscope. That sometimes the death we face is really nothing more than pathogens, than viruses. It's, it's what... Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 8, the creation is broken and the cells in my body are broken. And of the many, many viruses that are a part of life, the vast majority of them are very good and they're necessary to our health. There is a very small percentage of viruses that are broken viruses that break things, that break us, that kill us. And sometimes when we face death, in life, it's the groaning of creation. And it's nothing more than that. But there are other times 
when there is an evil behind the pathogen, behind the death that we're facing. This is what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 10, our gospel reading this morning where he said, there's a thief who has come to steal and kill and destroy. And not all death and danger and suffering we face is Satan. Sometimes the sufferings we go through are just the trials and sufferings of a creation that's groaning. But there are other moments in life when what we're facing is a evil, a dark evil, a, a formless, ambiguous force that is against God's good creation. There is a devil. And, and there are times in life where it is Satan. It is a spiritual battle we are engaged with. Sometimes Satan really does set out to kill somebody. A particular person. A particular group. God has reminded me that that is real. We don't like to think that way here in America because we've discovered the glories of science. But it's there. A second thing I've learned, and this is new for me. In spiritual warfare, Satan goes for the bullseye. So remember the passage of scripture Matt read to us, the first chapter of Job. Before Satan ever shows up, you've got Job, and he's got this amazing family, and he's got everything. He's incredibly wealthy, and apparently he's so good-looking, he doesn't even have to have hair like some people to compensate. He's just one of these astonishing guys. Everything is great. But there's one thing in life that he is most concerned about protecting. Before Satan ever shows up, it says in Job chapter 1, verse 5, when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate his children, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned. Before Satan ever shows up, in the very beginning, as you're just getting used to the plot, the one thing Job is concerned about is his children. And Satan kills them. There are times where spiritual warfare is what you're going through. And in spiritual warfare, Satan goes for your jugular. And it might be different than mine. It might be different than Job's. But he went for the bullseye. A third thing God reminded me of. Is that as Satan does this. He not only has a habit of going for the bullseye. But in spiritual warfare. There are times where Satan overreaches. I mean, it's easiest to think about with Jesus, right? I mean, imagine you're Satan, the coup d'etat, right? The greatest thing you could do is kill God. But somehow, in the judo move of all judo moves, God the Father takes Satan's murder of the Son and turns it into the redemption of the world. It was the ultimate overreach. It's like a, 
a, a leader in battle leading his troops for the kill, right for the heart of the enemy, and then suddenly discovering that it was a trap, that he went too far, that it ultimately ends in his demise. Satan goes for the bullseye, and there are times when Satan overreaches, and he did that with me. He overreached. What, what happened with me when I was in the valley of the shadow of death is that this church and so many other churches rose up in prayer. It was an overreach. God is more creative with Satan's evil than Satan is. I saw this in my own life. A fourth thing that God has taught me, I think that part of what has been happening to me and my family over the past nine months is a satanic attack on our church. We're, our church over the past, we're 10 years old. On October the 10th, we're going to celebrate our 10-year anniversary as a church. And what we have experienced over the last 10 years is remarkable. It has been 10 years of fruitfulness. I mean, the number of people whose faith was stale and they came into the life of our church and they grew and their faith came alive. The number of people who, the Bible says God sets the lonely in families. The number of people who were marked by loneliness and in the work of our church, they discovered spiritual friendship. Do you know how many babies have been born in our church? Nobody does. It's mind-boggling. It's um, all the time. Do you know how few funerals we've had in our church? Life has defeated death in our church over and over and over from the beginning. Do you know that in the 10 years of our existence, our church has directly or indirectly helped plant 10 churches? Did you know that? 10 churches. It's mind-boggling what God has done. Do you know that we bought this building? We own this building? Do you know that of all the Anglican churches in our diocese in Virginia, there's only one other Anglican church that owns a building? Do you know that of all the church plants that happened in Harrisonburg in the last 10 years, there's only one other church plant that has been able to buy a building? And we've bought two. And we're now giving this one, selling this one to Christ Presbyterian, and we're about to do it again. God has put two new church buildings in the center of Harrisonburg. What, there's a story Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 13, and he says, look, the kingdom of God is like a farmer going out, and he throws seed. And sometimes the, it gets gobbled up and nothing happens, and sometimes something happens for a minute, and then it falls away. But sometimes the good seed lands on good hearts, and the fruit is a hundredfold or sixtyfold or thirtyfold. We've experienced 10 years of a hundredfold fruit. Everything our church has done for God, he's done it's worked out better. And it, it doesn't always work that way in the Christian life. Sometimes you put in more sweat equity than the fruit that comes back. There's this passage of scripture. It's in Philippians chapter 1. And the apostle Paul is himself in the valley of the shadow of death. And he's writing a letter to the church at Philippi that he started. He's in Ephesus. And he says to the Christians in Philippi, he's convinced that he might die and that if he does die, it will hurt them. Because he is needed for them to continue to grow in the faith. It's this fascinating moment where he says, look, here's what I think is happening. 
I think that Satan's attack on me and my family was part of an attempt to stop the work of incarnation in our city and in our region, our diocese, and in Sudan. And that's part of what was going on there. Now, if you're a note taker, here's a fifth thing. A fifth thing God has reminded me of or taught me is that prayer really does work. It really does. Remember the story I just told you about Paul, the apostle, he's in jail, he's, he's close to death, he might die, and he writes to the Christians who live in Philippi, and he says to them, look, I don't think I'm supposed to die here. Here's what he wrote. I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, I will be delivered. Through your prayers and the help of the Spirit, I will be delivered. God acts differently when we pray than when we don't pray. Now, I don't understand that entirely, but look, we can get, we can wrap our mind around consequences, right? There are times that if you get behind the wheel of the car and you've been drinking, you will kill somebody. And if you had not have gotten behind the wheel of the car, somebody would not have died. Now, we also know that there are times in life where if you show up for work, you pay your bills. And if you don't show up for work, you don't pay your bills. This kind of action consequence that's a part of life. And one of the act consequences formulas of life is that there are times where people live or die if we pray or not. You know, I can't understand all of that. And it's not always like that. Sometimes God's going to do what God's going to do. But sometimes, it's not like that. We have always been a church of prayer. We've always dedicated time in our service to pray. We always have dedicated time in our homes during the week to pray. We've always called our church to learn how to pray individually. Oh, this has been a mantra of our church. We must continue. We must continue to pray as a church. The sixth thing I've learned is that when God delivers you from death, Psalm 68, verse 20 says, To the Lord belong all deliverances from death. When God delivers you from death, you should give him a gift. When I was in the hospital, in the valley of the shadow of death, it was the Psalms that I could read and I could pray. And I noticed over and over again, David was always about to be killed by somebody. His, apparently, part of the job description of being a king is um, regular brushes with death. So David was always begging God to deliver him. And over and over he would say, if you deliver me, I will give you a thank offering. Psalm 56 verse 12 is what stood out to me one day when I was in the hospital. As I'm reading the Psalms and praying, I get to this verse. I will render thank offerings to you For you have delivered my soul from death, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. So I came out of the hospital, and Janelle and I sat on the porch, and I told Janelle, I think that um, what the Psalms teach us is when you've been delivered from death, you should give a gift to God. I, I would like us to give God a thank offering, a gift. And so we talked about this. Well, when I came home from the hospital, The first thing my family did was we found the most expensive restaurant in town that was open. And we told all of our kids, order anything on the menu. We're going to feast. I was near death. I'm alive. We're going to have a party. We're going to celebrate. You can order from the appetizer section and the entree section and the dessert section and half of the drink menu. Mom and I can order from the other half. 
And they did. And it cost a lot of money. So as we're sitting and talking about we want to give God a thank offering, we said, well, it's got to be more than what we just spent for ourselves in a party, which added up to a lot. And so we, we also said we want it to be enough that we feel it in our budget for a while. So we thought this through and we came up with a number of figures and we landed on a figure that was intimidating. It, it was going to be a stretch for us and it was going to impact our life. A few days later, my dad arrives and he gives me an envelope and he gives Janelle an envelope of money that somebody in Louisiana had said, God told me to give this to your son. And it was 10 times the amount that we had pledged to God. In other words, here's the seventh thing I've been reminded of. You cannot outgive God. We reached as far as we could, and God had already given us 10 times that amount. We just didn't know it, and it was the tithe on what he had given us. You can't, people who sit around moaning about tithing and giving 10% to God, my grandfather always said, give God 10% or he'll let Satan take a whole lot more. You can't outgive God. You really can't. And an eighth thing I learned is this. In death, Jesus is faithful. So when the doctor came to me and said, do you have an advanced directive? And will you give us permission to sedate you and intubate you? Um, what I thought immediately when he said it to me was when the doctor had called me about my mother and said, will you give, I was the liaison with the hospital for my mom. Will you give us permission to intubate? And we did. And she never woke up. And in conversations with several doctors after that who are friends of mine, uh, our family, we came to realize if we had it to do over, we would not have intubated my mother. And that's what I remembered. And so I told the doctor, I said, you'll have to call my wife. So there were these days where I asked the doctor, like, is this serious? And the doctor said yes. And where the doctors were telling us, look, if... You're in this window, and if in the next few days you don't get on a good path, we're going to have to intubate. And so I kept moving up all the, the nasal cannula and then the little face mask and then the giant face mask. And I'm at the highest level of oxygen, and the very next step is intubation. And when I would wake up and I was lucid and coherent, um, I would think, oh, I might die. Oh, well. And it, I had no fear of death, none, no anxiety at all about death. Now, they had me on these anti-anxiety drugs, <laughs> maybe that, but <laughs> my resting heart rate was what you can imagine for an athlete of my stature. <laughs> but for real, there was no fear of death, and, and here... And here's why that's significant. I'm more anxious now thinking about dying than I was when I was in the valley of the shadow of death. And what I learned was that what we've been taught and what we teach is true. Jesus conquered death. And he is a faithful friend. 
And you can tell yourself and you can tell your children and your grandchildren that when they face death, Jesus will be faithful. He will be with you in the hour of your death. He will be. And when the Lord of life who has conquered the grave is near to you or your children or anybody you love and they're next to death, life and Jesus has taken the sting out of death. I, I experienced it. In that moment, there was no fear. Jesus is so kind. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you're with me. He will be. He will be with you. The ninth thing is this. Heaven and the new creation will outweigh every suffering you've ever gone through. This is what Paul said in Romans chapter 8. He said, look, the sufferings of this present world will pale in comparison to the weight of glory to what we get. Can you imagine? I've gone through a hell of a year. And my family has. When we die and we get Jesus and we are resurrected with new bodies for the new creation, it will be so glorious that the hell we've lived through will be erased. It won't, it won't compare. And what we've gone through is nothing compared to what some atrocities we read about and we learn about. Can you imagine a glory so great that the worst sufferings this world's ever perpetrated or experienced will pale. That's what we... Do you know that myself, my dad, some people in our church who've experienced these kind of near-death experiences, three people I'm thinking of, all three of them said, dying would have been a gain. And they still think about death as a gain. It's because they got close. It's worth it. Death is gain for Christians. This is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. If I die, it's gain. I get to be with the Lord. But if I live, I get to be with you. Number 10. 10 lesson. 10th lesson. Uh, when I was in the ICU, a group of people in the church... Uh, began to pray with me and for me, Psalm 121. And it became the most meaningful passage of Scripture, Psalm 121. The first line of it is this, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? You know why he says that? You know why he says, when I look at the hills, the next question is, where does my help come from? Because that's where Israel went for help. In the, in the ancient Near East... You went to the hilltops to worship your gods because they were close. And Israel kept falling back into worshiping other gods. So the psalmist looks up and he, and he imagines and he knows that this is where people go for help. And he says, I look to the hills. Where does my help come from? Better than that. Better than any other god. My help comes from Yahweh. The king of kings, the God of gods, the great one, the Lord of all the lords. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And the last thing I want to leave with you is this. Why would you pass up a chance to have the greatest God helping you? Why would you settle 
for pornography or alcohol or money or some other God or some other religion. You know what sets Christianity apart? We worship the one true God. And, and he offers us his help. I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? It comes from the one who is truly the king of all kings. And so I just want to say to you, if you're not a Christian, or if you're deciding if you're going to embrace the faith or not, you have the greatest opportunity in the world. You can have the true God as your helper. Why would you want anything else? Let's pray.